Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada, published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief, Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with industry leaders and thinkers about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. Robotic automation has changed virtually every industry. Their ubiquity has moved from the assembly line to the house, from multi-axis manipulator arms to those cute little vacuums scurrying around on your floor, and countless other examples in between. I say virtually every industry because there's a major one that still lags far behind in embracing the precision, reliability, and endless potential of robotics and automation. I'm talking about the making of buildings. Given how this is an industry notorious for inefficiency and waste, one must wonder why we're not seeing robots on the job site or in the design office. Well, one reason is access to training. In this episode of Bevel, I enlist David Correa, an associate professor at the University of Waterloo School of Architecture, to help explore how limited access to robotics education is slowing down an industry already sluggish to adopt the exceptional potential this technology has for the built environment. David and I examine why there is no school in Canada, and in fact very few worldwide, that has a dedicated program to explore how robotics integration could transform the building industry. We look at how very few courses or studios there are that actually engage research in architecture or construction using robotics, and we discuss in what ways this deficiency is harming the architecture and design profession. So David, it's great to have you on the show. I want to say thanks very much for taking the time out to come talk with me about a very interesting topic. I don't get to... uh, explore with people very often. Uh, This conversation is going to be about robotics. I tend to talk to designers and we wax philosophic about design ideas, but this is a great opportunity to explore an area that I don't get to very often. So thank you very much for coming on the show with me. Oh, Peter, thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure um, to be on the show and to have a chance to chat about these ideas with you. As you know, I'm, I'm always really excited and very passionate about thinking how does design change over time and how do we make the most out of it? Perfect. So let's sort of start at the beginning. And by beginning, I always find it interesting to and helpful to sort of um, lay down a definition, uh, a layer of definitions, a sort of understanding of language. So we're going to be talking about robots and robotics. And when people hear those words, they often sort of think Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, ideas of of robots. They think more on the sci-fi level. But what are we going to be talking about when we talk about robots and robotics? Like, what do we, what do those words actually mean in terms of what we're talking about? That's a good question, Peter. So um, I'll talk about them in, in the context of, our, of architecture. So in the broader sense, a robot is something that is able to move or manipulate something in a very precise manner. So it's digitally controlled uh, to some degree. Um, in construction, we think of them as, as basically tools that can manipulate parts and components very well. I think for some people, they imagine that it's about this giant or humanoid elements, as you said, that they're able to sort of replace humans and they jump into the side and they're going to basically make the machine. Um, I think the closest thing we got into that is when we see the giant cranes that come in and 3D print a building. Um, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about 
how we use process of automation and how we use a wide range of technologies that are making building components smarter, more efficient, more precise. And how does that start to change potentially? How does that apply to architecture? So we're talking about essentially five things. One is the, when we're talking about robotics, being in the general sense, we're talking about five things. We're talking about hardware. So what is the machine itself, the robot, the components, what the thing physical that is manipulating, moving, or changing something. We're also thinking about the process. So what is it that that machine does? How is it integrated within a system? Uh, we're also talking about computational tools, which is the software that is used to interface between either the designer, uh, the person, the user, and the tool itself. And then we're also talking about two things that are always on the back end of any sort of robot or any application, which is the designer and the engineering. And, you know, just to, now talking, thinking about the top of my head is if you think of this as a, uh, I think everyone is very familiar with a robot vacuum. There is a hardware for the machine. There's a process, which is how it's going to clean your house. There's computational tools, apps, and interfaces that allow us to interface with that tool. But there's also a designer that have to think about both how does that computational tool is integrated within your workflow, with your user interface, how it is it made, how is it designed, how it operates. There's a number of engineering steps to make sure that that thing is reliable, that it's able to perform the way you want it, that is efficient, that is long lasting, and so on. So we're talking about those five things. Does that make sense to you, Peter? It does. Now, my next question, though, has to do with, because the, the way you just described it is fairly broad. It's a, it's a very useful starting point for sure. But as you know, uh, you know, Bevel tends to want to focus on uh, issues relating to the A&D industry, architects, designers. Mm -hmm. Construction is definitely a part of that. So let's sort of zone in a bit more on what you were talking about in terms of what we mean when we say robotics and look a little bit at what the, what these, what robots and robotics can do can actually do that would be of relevance to an architect or a designer. And I don't know, maybe we should separate, maybe we'll, we'll find a way to come back to this later in the conversation, but do you think there's re relevance now in separating the way an architect or designer would approach robotics from uh, the like the construction side, or can we can we talk about them all in the same breath? Maybe let's first start with that. Should we separate into architecture and construction? So the designing of buildings versus the building of buildings, or can we do all that in the same breath? That's a really that's a really interesting question, Peter, and it's one that I think, or at least I hope, most designers are are asking themselves. Because if we go 150 years and any time before then, we will find that they were not different, right? The builder, the manufacturer, the maker, and the designer were one and the same. So I think that this topic is relevant to architects, interior designers, and pro designers, because we're all in this business and we have this kind of deep passion to imagine how spaces, how, architect how architecture, how buildings, how experiences in the built form are made. We all are driven to make some things. We're driven to understand how they come together. But it's only about, again, the last 150 years that those things became disconnected from the ambition and the intent become, became disconnected from the process of putting them together and, and thinking through those processes, through the process of making. So I, from my perspective, 
considering the role of automation and considering the role of connecting manufacturing deeply into our ecosystem is actually kind of a, a, a coming back, a coming back home into the roots that made us designers, that make design kind of a driving force in our built environment. So I see this as an opportunity for us to grow and to have more agency and more direct connection into this process than anything else. Okay, so then now let's talk specifically about robots and robotics. What, I mean, within the sphere of, of what we're talking about, the built environment, what mm -hmm. can robots actually do? So if we think of this as a place we're coming back to the craft of making, then we have to think that of what robots are fundamentally are doing is they're forcing us to reconsider how we design and what we design. And that's actually a really kind of poignant point. Because if you think about computers, they themselves did not change as an object how we did, how we kind of found entertainment on how we communicated. But it was finding ways on, but it provided a platform for things to change. And I think that's really what this is kind of trying to do for us. So we're thinking of a new economy in which the robots are, or the automation process is forcing us to rethink how we build things. What are they, how are they changing? How do we design components that are using those efficiencies? And if we have agencies to those ones, how they can change the way we're making things, right? So if I always think about this in, in the context of cars, right? We, we cannot imagine someone designing a car then getting that stamp by an engineer to then be finding and sourcing manufacturers for making that vehicle. That seems completely unfathomable, right? But yet we have cars that are not custom built to us, but they're miles ahead, like just 50, 100 years ahead of what construction can offer. We have not seen that level of performance in building construction. But yet, you know, if you think about sort of the scales, the prices of a, of a building, price of construction, and this doesn't mean in any sector you're looking at, have reached astronomical prices. While that performance has only changed marginally in the last 50 years. So thinking about what robots can do at the high level means how is coming back to the craftsmanship of making and that direct connection to manufacturing is going to affect accessibility to buildings, is going to affect the performance, affect the performance of those buildings, is going to affect the way we design and we reconsider those processes because we have reconsidered the way we make virtually anything, right? The way we make phones, the way we make vacuums, the way, the way we make products, furniture, all of those things have changed by a deep understanding of how different technological advances from apps, from manufacturing advances, from the supply chain, from the assembly line have changed all of those things. And for some reason, and you know, there's obviously an economy to the way construction is stayed, but that is a market that have refused, have resisted innovation, has resisted kind of shifting those practices. So robots are one of the components in that shift that is making that has changed every other industry and this will inevitably change the way we design and make things in okay. construction interior design okay so i'm gonna hone in on that a little bit more because you said something there that was really interesting you used a fantastic analogy to help 
visualize for us what we're talking about here. You, you referenced the automotive industry and there's other industries too, like aerospace and other manufacturing industries, but mm-hmm. the automotive industry is a great uh, sort of primer for this conversation because everyone in their minds can visualize robots in action. And in that case, we're talking about uh, like multi-axis robot arms that can do all kinds of great things with uh, you know assembling a car and all that. So, I really kind of want to find out, though, in what in what practical way are, are are you proposing that that kind of use of robots and robotics can be applied to the construction industry? Because my initial reaction is uh, it's one of two things: something is built in a sealed environment, like the assembly line of a car factory. Or somehow you're going to propose that a robot can be brought to the construction site where we all know there's massive wastes, uh, confusion, you know, all kinds of problems. This is where, you know, the construction industry and the building of buildings is fraught with problems because it's a you're right that it's an industry slow to adopt new ways of doing things, but also. B, it's just very hard to build something in the open air, uh, in a, you know, with all kinds of logistical issues and um, related issues. Um, so it, it's inevitably uh, the, the construction site is a hard place to bring new technology. So let me rewind for a second. W- what are we talking about? Are we in in terms of what you're describing? Are we talking about building components in a in a in a sealed environment like mm-hmm. like an assembly line or are we talking about bringing robots to the construction site or are we talking about both i don't know maybe i shouldn't even be subdividing them no that's a very good point peter so bringing so the and i think it's a very fair question and it has a fair question based on on some history so in the early 80s and 90s um and sometime before then the Japanese took on this very seriously and they thought, you know, we'll make this giant, giant cranes that was basically build and they will do every job that a person can do in a site. And they will brought these giant machines into, into the site. And the reality is that that's a process that, as you know, has tremendous amount of variability, tremendously amount of changes, tremendously every building will have very different frameworks and it failed essentially. And the Japanese were obviously maybe the timing of how efficient and how up to speed, what kind of technology, microprocessor technology and data management existed back there wasn't up to par to the expectations. Um, but I think that since then, I would argue that every construction site already has some level of automation, whether it's aware or not, right? When you're, you're making moving heavy equipment, there are tons of sensors there's tons of microcontrollers already assisting every operator in their job so there's already some level of robotic automation in the site we're also using more and more computers on site whether it is for to managing data to manage construction estimates for bim all of those tools have already started to infiltrate and i don't think we can ever pull them back from there now would that increase? I think there will be instances in which some technology will have a tremendous impact in the way uh, we build on-site. I'm not 100% sure what that would be. If I have to guess, I would imagine that, for instance, 3D printing concrete foundations will be an area that will greatly benefit. You can imagine 
the crane operator shows up with a concrete pump, and maybe that concrete pump can just actually very precisely deposit the entire foundation in a matter of hours without formwork. There will be huge savings in the way that that could potentially change things. Is it ready yet? No. Is the technology at the point of level of information to be able to adapt to the topography real time? Is it cost effective yet? Maybe not, but I would suspect that that will change very quickly. Now, the other dimension that is the one that you're touching on, which is I think the one that has most growth potential is the one where we're making components offsite in an environment where we can control a lot more how that process occurs. Because yes, you're completely right. The construction can be harsh. It can be difficult. There is all kinds of unpredictable elements that we can assess. There is all kinds of reasons why many of us simply can't access the site or are terrified of being on site. Um, but an environment that has a lot more control, weather conditions are, are you know precisely um, Climate condition is essentially is what I'm trying to think. And a climate condition environment where we have a much more clear integration between different disciplines. We have our engineering side or electrical, everyone working together on a project will inevitably result in components and basically building assemblies that are far more refined than we are able to, to, to have today. And there's already examples of companies who are moving in that direction. And again, it's not a race to create prefabricated homes only, but a wide range of other components that will be used from walls, you know, mass timber being a great example of innovation where you're not just buying raw material, but you're actually buying a wall that is specific for your project in the place on the side where you need it. So all of those steps are already underway. Um, I believe it's probably gonna be very similar to other industries where it's not that someone is building your car in your driveway, but it's someone who's building it in a plant under very tight conditions so that the performance of the vehicle can be certified and guaranteed. And that's something that even the um, certification agencies are already looking into. Well, you mentioned already some examples that are relevant to looking at the, when we're discussing this about doing it in a controlled environment, you already brought up a couple examples like wall panel assemblies, some of the technology being implemented in mass timber construction. These are obviously uh, processes that are of relevance or at least should be of interest to architects. Um, and let's extend the field a bit. We'll include interior designers as well in this conversation. So if you could, I wouldn't mind uh, exploring that a little bit. Specifically, what I mean is how is this type of technology relevant to architects and interior designers? Are we really sort of now focused? Because what, what you essentially did is okay we're we're moving it away from the construction site management side not to say that there's not potential there there clearly is um and and you know i've seen some some small scale examples where they're playing around with that you mentioned the uh the 3d printing concrete um uh, foundations i've seen you know we've all seen small examples where they've been experimenting with that but let's for now take it away from the construction site management side talk about architecture and design and it sounds like you're talking about assembling um, components in a factory using robots to be able to customize, but also move fast and get stuff done. Um, so let's, if you don't mind, explore that a little bit more for me. What, where are the points of relevance for architects and designers in this in this conversation? That's a, well, Peter, to so expand, and I think you, you touched base there on, on on interior design and. 
interior design and basically I think is one of the segments in my opinion that in the short term will have the, the greatest gains and it, and it sounds maybe bizarre and I'm not an interior designer although I have done interior design projects um, but whenever you're doing fittings or you're doing installations or you're doing assemblies in, in the interior most of the time you generate a geometry and then or a design intent and you have you look at a product but you have to work very closely with a manufacturer or with that supplier or with that installer to think about all the different ways in which it needs to be adapted to the specific location that you're working on right and to the material and to the techniques and the methods that they have now to for most of us that means design intent that means that i produce that geometry and then someone needs to reproduce that geometry into a language, whether that's through the machine language that it uses, whether that's G-code or it's profiles that are used for the CNC to cut them. There's a bunch of, there's a, a number of layers of translation that go between me, the designer, and the manufacturer and the installer. Now, if we think about automation as something that occurs in this pristine environment, what we also have to think about is how we're connecting between design intent and that environment. And I mean by that is in, in the projects that we have done and the projects that I've seen very successful, that translation occurs in bridging and removing all those layers of translation that are done externally and bringing those into the design. What does that mean? That means that rather than me generating a geometry that then needs to be adapted to what the machine does, I am generating the design already with all the informations, constraints, and limitations and potential that the machine can apply. And that translates to efficiencies. And efficiencies on both my ambitions, I can get things that are more plausible, that are more sometimes far more successful and far more co complex that I could achieve. But it also means that I'm not counting on three more, three, two, three, or four people's labor trying to translate my intent into something else. And I think that, you know, it sounds like a minor thing, but for instance, there's a company in the Netherlands, iActual, and what they do is they 3D print amazing patterns in flooring. So they use this normal five axis machines and they create this maps of a floor, but that map is already informed by the site. So they know exactly the floor plan. They know exactly what kind of design they have. And that design will be, obviously, will have a specific features for where the columns are or where they're going to have an area that is of interest or where the seating is going to go. All of that is embedded into it. They pre-print those mats. They put them on site, and then they, they run the floor on top of all of that. So they get these amazing patterns that are completely astonishing, but that are very specific to the location where it's happening. Right? So rather than the designer saying, well, I just want some geometry here and there, that designer has the agency to know exactly how it's going to look like. It's going to have the agency of directly informing, directly innovating how that product might actually be unique to that customer, how that product is going to be created a new type of identity for that user. And that's something that, again, yes, it could be done to some degree if you're working very closely with the trades. And I think many of us do it that way and we try and we strive to it. But then we start to negotiate those differences of, okay, liability and how it, we know what kind of trade I'm able to hire. And not, it's not very common that we decide what trades we're working with. In some instances, we have that luxury. 
But in other instances, we simply, you know, have a tender and then we just basically work with whoever is assigned to us. And, you know, in architecture, that's a big field. We don't necessarily choose the, con the construction company. We're giving a set of contractors and then we work with them and we hope that they are eager to collaborate with us. Now with robotics, the intention is, and the goal is that you are connecting those two trades in a much more close way. And again, I think interior design has a lot of potential because whenever we're looking custom fittings, whenever we're looking at specific county, where we're looking at all those things, it is that process. And I said, that's where there's four parts. And in the, in, for most of us, the robot in that case might be a five axis or a six axis or a seven axis manipulator, but it could also be a very precise CNC machine. Could be a five axis router, could be a three axis router, could be any of those tools, but rather than me saying, okay, well, can that be done? Is more me designing how that is done and how that is actually, you know, reducing labor, is considering assembly, is kind of designing all those features as something that actually can kind of showcase the most potential of both the material, but also my design ambitions. And one thing that I find is really important for, for designers is that I think very often we feel that we spent all this energy into kind of troubleshooting all these ideas and then the IP basically disappears. Many, I don't know if this has happened to you or to some of your audience, but I know that we have spent tremendous amount of energy creating something only for the manufacturer and then take that IP and then apply it on 15 other projects and then we're kind of left out of that loop. Um, I think this is a tremendous opportunity for us to gain more agency and it's a tremendous opportunity for us as designers to really harness that IP and leverage it to our own advantage. Does that answer your question, Peter? Yeah, it does. I mean, you're talking a lot about some of the things that are obviously very important to uh, an industry like architecture and design. You know, we're talking about innovation, precision, reliability, uh, 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 you know, repeatability, um, all those things. So clearly there's relevance to, to the A&D industry. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what seems to be uh, the hurdles or what seems to be some of the roadblocks that are getting in the way or currently in the way of uh, an adoption of this type of innovative technology? Let's start with some of the topics I know that are close to you, because this is actually how, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you specifically about this, is because I want to bring up issues of education and training um, and the lack thereof when we talk about robotics robotics and its integration to the A&D industry. So if you don't mind, I would like to ask you, where where are we in North America? Let's start with North America, although I'm sure it's a, it's a mm -hmm. much larger scope. But where are we? What's the landscape like as far as education and training when it comes to, um, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, absorbing or uh, uh, integrating this type of technology? And starting from the assumption that it we're not in a great place <laughs> as far as education and training. Uh, how How is this harming the A&D industry? So in essence, it's a two-part question. Let's start with the first part. Okay. How, wh what so, is the landscape as far as education on this? Um, okay, the landscape. So, I mean, I think of the way I think about, right, if I were to phrase uh, or rephrase what you said, I think I would think of nurturing an ecosystem um, of innovation and design excellence. That's sort of my ambition is to be able to foster those environments that allow for those connections that take something new, something old, and possibly something borrow and create something that is really connecting 
to the larger society and is providing a value that could have otherwise not have been found or seen. So kind of going back to your question, you know, there's five dimensions. There's hardware, there's a process, there's the tools, computational tools, the design and the engineering. We have in Canada, and, you know, I teach and work at Waterloo and is one of those places that have tremendous excellence in training each one of those, each expertise in very independent silos, right? So we have architects who are experts at thinking about the design intent and how it has a role in society. We have engineers who are experts understanding material science and how to optimize, improve, reduce emissions, reduce and improve their performance at every level, fantastic. We have Conestoga College, tremendous amount of, and I think this happens across all of Canada, there's a tremendous demand for trades and, and there's a growth and an interest on developing their skill sets and the relevance and the way they can integrate with new technologies. All that is fantastic. We have also people who make robots, whether they're from mechatronics or mechanical engineering, and they make anything from robot vacuums to cars to airspace, all of those um, kind of high demand, high technologically or technological intensity um, processes for manufacturing. And then we have computer science engineers, right? And Waterloo and Canada having actually been in a very, very privileged position in the sense that there's, there's a lot of strength on that sector compared to the rest of the world. Um, but as you can see, they're all have kind of each discipline has a defined scope and within that scope, an economy that nurtures it and that harness all that power. So what I'm trying to think is, it's not very common that we hear that a builder hired a computer science graduate. We also, it's not very common to see that interior designer who just used the robot themselves and manufactured the latest project. So the question I'm always trying to ask myself is, how do we change that, okay? So I'm seeing so far, the later, the interior designer, the architect, starting to tackle the manufacturer more directly, more than I have seen the builder hiring the computer science. Not that it hasn't happened, and I could point to ex examples of where that is now being the case. Um, but the big change is that, you know, or the, the kind of, if I were to point to the specific issue that we're having is that, you know, by law, architects, we are only this, you know, we're only allowed to define a design intent. And an engineer is only able to certify whether something meets the requirements or not. We're not allowed to make it, right? So if we go back to any other product that we interact with, whether it's a phone, an appliance, a car, or anything else, we know that it's not feasible to have that kind of disintegration. We just cannot have that separation. We cannot stay on those silos. So one of the challenges that we have in North America, and you're sort of right that we're sort of in this strange situation is that we went from being a place of tremendous manufacturing capacity where that, those synergies were at the pinnacle, were kind of the, the keystone for us to, to do all the kind of amazing things that we do, and we kind of outsource a lot of that. So when it comes to academia, what, I'm, what we're really, really lacking is a space that can nurture that kind of, those kind of connections. And there's a couple of places internationally that are doing it. Um, I would like to think that I'm trying to kind of create those spaces in Canada as well, but it is not something that is common because again, those disciplinary silos have developed very strong economies. They have high demand and, you know, ecosystems tends to maintain their own momentum, right? They kind of feed themselves and they grow until there's a crisis. And, you know, 
you could argue that some of the challenges we're facing now with sustainability, with climate change, and with the high prices of building construction might just be the thing that might actually force us to reconsider and open up those uh, markets. Um, but anyways, I could have spent more and say that, yes, there's places abroad that have really created those spaces, uh, places in Stuttgart, places in, in uh, at Eteha in Zurich, um, and even here in Michigan, that's the closest one to us, that have created those spaces where it's not about just the engineer, it's not about just the architect. There are places where they're putting side by side an architecture student, an engineering student, an interior designer, uh, mechanical and materials, or a mechanical engineer, or a material science, and they're having this very open questions. Okay, if we could do this, how will we do it? Let's try to think across all of these scales and then across all those disciplines, what could the future look like if we could do this or that? And in many cases, it might be, okay, what if we use this completely new material? Uh, for instance, what if we use sand as a building material that is compression only? What do we need to do? What is the material science that allows us to do it? What is the precision manipulation of that material that we can do it? Um, what is the design implications of those design decisions? And we've seen a lot of tremendous innovation with those centers. We've also seen tremendous amount of interest from industry to try to capitalize on some of those innovations. But in Canada, as I, as I said, and I'm very proud of sort of the, the strength of the University of Waterloo and other universities in producing top experts on those individual fields, we're very shy about creating spaces that really challenge those in that integration. And so far, I think that we have always overlooked building construction as a key market, right? We have thought of automotive in Ontario as the key market for innovation. So a lot of our grads go into automotive, go into manufacturing within those kind of very clear areas of development. But I don't think we have kind of really considered that hey, there's this other market here that has been kind of flying under the radar for a long time that is one of the most demanding and probably one of the largest growing markets building construction that is kind of underlooked. And I, I, don't, I have not seen yet that kind of drive at institutional level and even from our industry partners to really kind of foster that. Not again, not that doesn't exist. I have some really good partnerships and I continue to build partnerships across the board. But that space has not gained that momentum the way it has done in European countries. And I, and I mean that, and I think, I will think the kind of key reason for that is that, for instance, a place like Germany and Switzerland, their ambition for manufacturing, for development is much greater um, than we have um, maintained, I will say. Maintained because I, I know we had it. <laughs> I'm aware that we had it. And I wish we'd still be pushing in that direction. Does that make sense to you, Peter? It does. You said something that... I sort of want to cycle back to, in fact, I might have to get you to just repeat yourself, but it, you said something that re really caught my ear. Um, I mean, you outlined a handful of institutions. Um, you know, there's a few in North America, University of Waterloo being one, a few others, like you mentioned Conestoga College, which focuses on teaching robotics handling, but it doesn't teach how to think about how to use robots in a broader spectrum. Uh, there's a few other institutions in North America, Germany, Switzerland, certain institutions in Europe have uh, sort of, uh, you know, a better grasp on this. But you said something that I, I kind of want to come back to because 
those institutions are creating graduates. But my question is, where are these graduates going? Because I could be wrong, but I assume it's not the architecture and design industry. You yourself even just said a minute ago that, you know, even here they're they're being uh, siphoned into the automotive industry where that seems to be the most, at least it's been decided, that's a, the most vibrant industry to put those efforts um, and other examples like that. So, I mean, that's kind of what I'm wondering is for the institutions that is teaching, is, is, is putting effort into research and teaching and creating a skill set, uh, you know, when it comes to robotics and automation, they're creating graduates. My question is, where are those graduates going? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question, Peter. So again, it depends on the on the graduates. So for instance, in, in Waterloo, I'm familiar with all the computer science and math graduates, and they're going into um, the Google, the Amazon, the kind of gazillion startups that are changing the way we manage data, right? That's a huge economy. Um, if we talk about Conestoga College graduates, we have the trades that go into our conventional building construction practice, which is in great need of those uh, graduates. We have roboticists. And I think what's important about roboticists is that roboticists will focus on how to program a robot, an industrial manipulator, to do a cycle over a million times, right? And that's how do we make vehicles, how do we make brakes, how do we make um, many of the things that that we currently consume. Now, and and it's an interesting kind of contradiction because, you know, if, if you go to a brick manufacturer in Ontario, you will find that the entire process is already automated, right? Five people run a plant that makes 50,000 bricks a day. And that's interesting. And you think, well, okay, well, that's, that's really good. And then they have two robots that do some of that work and they have a lot of automation. So roboticists will go in there and troubleshoot a small movement on the, on the robot that might be optimized to do this or that, but they're not the ones thinking about the entire process. Right? They are, their training is a specific to the manipulation and change of, okay, this, this sensor needs to be connected to this robot so that when he looks at a, at a certain part, he says that a part is there, so I kind of start the process. Great. But the real value of innovation is how do I think about what else could we make with this process? What is the new design? And I think that's always important to remember that that design innovation comes from, again, product designers, architects, and interior designers. We're the ones who have to think, well, what else could be done with this technology? What else can happen here? Um, am I answering your question, Peter, or, am I, or did I go sidetracked here? No, no. I mean, what you're saying makes sense, and, and you know, it's important to shine a light on that. But I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal a bit of a, you know, what's going on in my head when we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. There, there's a certain <laughs> angle to this I'm curious about. Um, when we're talking about uh, education and then the outcome of education, which is uh, let, let's, for lack of a better way to describe them, let's call them graduates with a skill set. Now, there's an angle to this I find interesting, especially as it relates to the A&D industry. And it comes mm-hmm. from my um, growing interest, or at least, you know, uh, focus and following uh, what's been going on with the developments in the metaverse and web three um Mm. there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in that sphere um that i find shines an interesting light on um sort of where our collective minds are at uh, but also 
you know, the awkwardness or the difficulty in adopting new technologies, you know, especially like industries that are slow to adopt regardless. And the architecture industry is a good example of that. Um, so let me let me explain a bit what I'm discuss what, what I'm describing because uh-huh. you know I see some of what's happening in the metaverse and the development of Web three um, having an interesting comparison here. Uh, in in that here here's an example. I was I was reading an interview that uh, a person who works for a fairly large international architecture firm. I'm not going to name name names here, but this person works for a large international firm and their title is digital innovation strategist. Okay. So that gives you a bit of an example or a bit of a, mm-hmm. a, a clue into what they do. Um, and as I said, they're, you know, work for a major international architecture firm. And the interview was about the metaverse and trying to explain it to architects. And they said something interesting. Um, they said, in essence, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but from what I remember the answer, it basically came down to what they said was that architects won't have to actually develop new skill sets. Um, they were referencing like the building of metaverse spaces and stuff. They essentially said architects won't have to develop new skill sets because the actual work of building metaverse spaces will be done by specialists. Um, and they also said, you know, most likely there's going to be a lot of uh, product that are essentially going to be like plugins or additional tools to workflows that are already existing within the digitization of the architecture craft. But what I heard there uh, was it that really caught my ear was essentially that they're saying, listen, architects who are classically trained, and that's probably not going to change that much, at least you know, from the, the, the mentality of, of the industry, they don't really have to worry about being left out in the woods as this whole new metaverse thing takes over. Uh, all you need to do is hire a specialist who might not actually be an architect by training, but they know how to, how to develop metaverse spaces and tools and stuff. The reason that popped out in my mm-hmm. head is as it relates to what we're talking about is now I'm thinking, well, do architects need to spend time and resources investing in robotics or can they just hire uh, someone or a company to do it for them? So do you see where I'm, where I'm coming from? Yeah, no, like I, it, know it's almost like, I know where you're going at. Yeah. Does a graduate I mean, need to know anything about architecture to be hired by an architect? <laughs> as dumb as that sounds. No, I think that's a really good question. I mean, there's two, there's, we're kind of going back to sort of this discussion between disciplines and a specialization versus um, the generalist in many ways. Or, and I think of the generalist more going back to this idea of the master mason in architecture and design where you start not in the studio, but you start in the shop and you start in the shop being on the construction side and you build an, in, an intrinsic knowledge of the materials, you build an intrinsic logic of the lo- of the process of assembly, you get an intrinsic understanding of the structures. And through that step-by-step understanding, you're able to master the craft of building construction. And if you think back, there was no distinction between the representation of the building to the making of the building, to the engineering, to the interior design, to the many trades that were integrated within that process that led, led to sort of both the decorations, to the foundations, to all of those steps. 
Now, we are in a place where that's not as common, or at least not as common in building construction. I would argue, and you know, I have had firsthand experience in the automotive industry looking at some of my colleagues who work there, that that connection is not perfect, but is more maintained, right? You do look at someone looking at the samples, understanding what the constraints of the injection molding, understanding how 3D printing into a component can change the possibilities of what you can or cannot make for a vehicle. You, out of space also being a um, vertically integrated industry where yes, not everything is built on site, but that chain of shared liability, that chain of common interest is all in one place, right? So when we talk about the metaverse, so connecting back to what you're saying, there's one dimension when we say, yes, I'm gonna maintain my classical train design instinct where I can sketch in paper, then I pass it on to someone who can model, who then creates and that or translate that information into a three-dimensional environment. And then we pass it to an specialist who then implements the code to connect interaction, to understand how product placement is gonna happen into it, what kind of brand identity we're working with it. That's all true and feasible, but we will find that there's always a disconnect, right? We will find that is not going to be as informed. And I think what I have found in my experience with working with many designers across industries is that that intrinsic knowledge, that hands-on experience, that applied research that happens in design is exponentially valuable across all industries. So if you go to um, Nike, you'll find tons of architects and designers who started with the material and are kind of at the cutting edge of how these technologies are being implemented and developing. I had experience working with software companies myself where you know you do have the specialist animator, you do have the specialist programmer, but we had those very strong designers who were able to not do everything but they had this intrinsic understanding of the entire process and they were really shifting how those industries worked. And you can find CEOs in software companies, manufacturing companies, shoe company, uh, clothing companies, all architects. If you go to Mercedes-Benz, you'll find, or BMW, you'll find architects in their design group, um, in their manufacturing group as well. And architects and designers, I mean, this as a product designers are, I think of design and architecture as all one kind of strong field I don't necessarily think of them as disciplines because, again, I feel that to be frustrating because I don't think it's, it's as, as cutthroat as, or I find it's a lot more overlap than, than difference. And I know this might be controversial, but I, that's sort of the, the, the feeling I have. Um, so I think architects can take two approaches. One is to think there's a specialization and it's like in everything, there's a value to being highly specialized in one area and supporting other things. But I also believe there's extreme value, value on understanding the entire ecosystem and being to be, and be able to be a strategic and tactical implementator and tactical operator within those systems. And now I could also take another lens that I think is very valuable to think about is that there is a significant difference in the income and in the economies of these systems, right? So when you and I think about a design, we can both have an opinion and that opinion can be sort of somehow be assessed based on, yes, 
if I have a lot of name recognition or I have a lot of brand identity, I can have a, a significant premium to my opinion versus yours in design. But when it comes to manufacturing, that value is very explicit on the cost of how things are made. And I can charge a significant premium when my expertise can significantly change and significantly affect that process. Right? And I think that is incredibly important to assess when we're making those decisions as to where we can have more agency and where we can have more power in our own uh, careers and in our own sort of um, impact in the built world. Are we kind of putting our value based on a couple of designers or a couple of brain recognition? Or are we putting it on to be able to have that impact on the entire workflow and the entire um, financial chain that is correlated to any project? And I okay. think that's why aerospace and automotive have been successful, right? Because that integration kind of really translate. If you can make a part that is 30% better, that it improves performance by 20% and reduces cost by this much, your value of your company and your IP significantly increased and is demonstrable so. And that is kind of the design potential that I think is easily missed when we think, oh, you know, you don't have to worry, you'll get someone who does it. But that's someone who does, who is a specialist, who does the integration. If that person understands the value that goes into it, that person is going to be able to capitalize on that far more than you will be. And I think that's an important distinction that I think is easily overlooked. Yeah. No, that's true. In fact, I think that actually segues very well into, I guess, what will be sort of my wrap-up question. Ironically, and this happens to me all the time, I end up wrapping up with the biggest question. <laughs> um, so it's kind of hard to, uh, to to lead to a sign-off, but I'll do it anyway because I'm prone to doing to doing things this way. But I always sort of ask when I'm talking to someone, you know, with a with an eye and an understanding to the potential of new technologies or new processes or new ways of doing things. I always sort of wrap up by asking, okay, we're not there yet. What can or should be done to help get us there? And, you know, when I'm doing research on things like the metaverse or web three blockchain technology, that kind of thing, it's so brand new that people are having a hard time even understanding the language, let alone uh, blue skying its, its potential, even though they all acknowledge that it's there. But robotics have been around for a while, right? You yourself said that the automotive and aerospace industry were uh, adopted it and showed its, uh, its clear potential, not just potential, its clear value. Um, both materialistically and financially, i.e., you know, the benefits of pursuing that. And yet, you know, standing around watching the, the built environment uh, and the industries related to that, uh, I look and scratch my head and go, can't you guys see what, <laughs> what the other industries have done and how well they've, they've uh, succeeded doing it? So I guess I don't, uh, as a parting thought, what would you uh, want to say as far as what could or should be done to help nudge us faster down that road to adoption? Wow, the tough questions for the end, eh? I know, I, <laughs> I, I admit it, like I always end up that way, but it's sort of all the lead up gets to the, okay, so what next part of the conversation? <laughs> yes. And, and the um, what next is, ends up being the last question in the conversation. The next, the next one. Well, I will start with one. So recently I started, I'll try to answer your question, Mr. Cannon, you know, real mean if I get a bit um, sidetracked. But 
recently I, I visited a Toyota plant in, in Cambridge, which is one of the few plants in, in Canada that actually offer tours. And I took my students there and we went and just kind of toured around. And, you know, not only is their kind of process optimized to a level that you cannot possibly imagine, like you, the moment someone orders the car, this triggers a set of events that is carried through all of their systems and they control every component and how it's organized in their assembly line is just tremendously admirable. But one thing that struck me the most was a comment that they were doing during the tour. And they said, look, two years before COVID, we didn't, you know, we had all this, we had this co-op student who came in and he realized that there was a lot of people just moving cars between one station and another one. And, and he was um, kind of very interested in figuring out if we could automate that and we could just make that, uh, those carts basically move autonomously using GPS. And, Toyota took on this. So this is a co-op student, someone who from the University of Waterloo who was there working on something else. And he kind of said, well, you know, what if we, what could happen if we tried to put a navigation system that was autonomous just for those cars? Because, you know, what these people are doing is just basically moving this pallet from point A to point B. And that could be easily done. And that initiated this kind of change revolution in the span of three years. Now, all of those pallets are autonomous. So you go there and you have obviously tons and tons of employees doing tons of things, but you also have these carts that are just moving materials from point A to point B. And that has changed not only the production system in one Toyota plant, but it's changing the production system across the planet, right? So that's a very peculiar way of saying, well, there are innovations that can really change things, but they're not the large scale things that we can imagine. It can actually start small. And I think that's sort of the, the the sort of my ambition or the way I think about this. I think this is easy to think that there's going to be these multi-million startups that are just going to change the landscapes by one. But I, I actually tend to think that we can start really small. That schools and industry can start communication challenges, can start to sort of figure out problems, pick on small opportunities and think, well, why could we do this? Hmm, what could 3D printing change in the way we make this or that. We make windows and we make components in the way look at um, steel beams. Um, what could happen there? What, what if we just explore that as a, as a small kind of niche application and, and give it some time, give it some time in terms of the students, give it some time in terms of the maturity. And again, it's not this just fundamental research, applied research. It's trying to think, how do we use all these other innovations happening, but give it a space for that to start to, again, nurture create an environment that nurture that innovation, that is start to nurture those communications between people in these in disciplines, people like me who's an academic, but also people, I would also say like me, who's trying to make things in the real world. I'm also someone who's building, I'm also someone who's uh, producing products, but I'm also someone who really needs manufacturers to work with me to achieve some of the ambitions that I have. So that's sort of my, my, my perspective is not to think that we have this Massive change. Like we're one day going to change the, the one from one day to the next. The construction site is going to be transformed. But okay, what in the trans in the construction site could be done better, and what technologies do we have now to do that? And maybe that's something that you know a construction person or any small contractor might not be able to take on as a whole. But okay, what if a few of them say an organization say, well, let's let's fund a little bit of research on this. Let's 
get a co-op student from computer science and, and let him take a look at this. Yes, you know, maybe he's not going to go anywhere. Maybe he points to things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. What if we hired, um, as I said at the beginning, you know, what if contract, a contractor hires a computer scientist? What if an interior design hires someone in also computer science or construction or someone else and say, well, you know, why don't we take this as a test? When do we create this smallest space in which we start to figure out how this becomes applied? And it is more scale. Not that it's going to change the entire way we do something, but the way we can start to think about it differently. Um, and again, there's very good examples on multiple universities across the planet that have really found that there is an appetite for this, that there is a potential that has not been tapped on and their research programs have grown exponentially. But most importantly, the graduates from those programs, um, many of them architects, many of them engineers. And that's the interesting part. These places are not graduating an architect or an interior designer or an engineer or one of them. They're graduating all of them. And that's different, different thinking, right? That's a very different saying, oh, there's an environment in which you go with your disciplinary expertise and then you understand and then you challenge what those disciplinary expertise is, how it can be broadened, how it can harness technology, how it can critically evaluate problems and find solutions for things that we might have not anticipated or for problems that we have had for a long time. And all of these graduates do not only be hired in completely unexpected places. So I have colleagues who were designers and now they work in aerospace. I also have colleagues who were designers, my own graduates, and have gone on to work in, in the textile industry and look at the top of the line garments that are advanced because the same design thinking about the structure of a material, the assembly, the uh, relationship to the user, all of those things apply in a building, but they also apply in a garment. Um, I have students working in the shoe companies. I have students who are working in movies and sci-fi and looking at how design thinking then applies to procedural design for effects, procedural design for making cities, all of those dimensions. But they're, they started by kind of being challenged themselves to think outside of their own kind of niche and taking on small problems. You know, they didn't take on those large implications at once. They didn't take on the large sort of process, but they started with something that they could handle, but it challenged them enough that they could see that their own limitations on their own design thinking can be nurtured by those connections with others in disciplines that would seem kind of different from yours but that actually can contribute a wealth of knowledge that we couldn't access otherwise. I mean, I know in my own work, I work constantly with material scientists. I work constantly with biologists. I work constantly with engineers. I, even on my own classes in architecture, I will bring them into the studio. I bring, and I, you know, I can keep on the discipline side, but I also bring developers. I also bring um, community members. I also bring people who, artists, because they all have a different perspective on where the impact, where the question needs to be um, asked with more rigor, where the question needs to be reconsidered, where the question might be the wrong question and need to be repositioned entirely so that the work and the potential impact of the work can have a, a greater application. Are you still there, Peter? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about what you were saying because a lot of what you're saying sounds a lot like some of the topics I've covered in the past where the focus is really on cross-pollination. I mean, you brought up 
you know, a, a particular spot of interest for me, which is the, the film and television industry, which hires a lot of designers, like properly classically trained architects and designers, um, not just to do what they're doing, but also to experiment, which then translates into actual built spaces. Um, so like set designers and, and production designers, uh, you know, hired with certain skill sets do work in the, the cinematic universe where you don't have to worry so much about the built world, but then they, you know, naturally a lot of those ideas translate into the actual built environment and they could be hired by actual architects. And also you've talked about fashion quite a bit and I've, I've been fascinated by how much of the early adoption of new technologies is in the fashion industry metaverse being one of the, one of the key ones, like that's popped up a lot in my research recently, um, how the fashion industry embraced as almost like the second it was being made available, they, they, adopt, they embraced and adopted these new um, tools that let them explore pattern and, and uh, how fabric moves on a body and all that. Kind of, and now a lot of those technologies have been adapted and expanded and adopted by um, the design industry thinking about how to build virtual showrooms, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. which makes it easy because now you don't need to actually have someone physically move their, <laughs> to a city to look at a physical showroom, to look at a physical set of uh, wallpaper swatches or something like that. So anyway, yeah, I mean, everything you were saying was really just sort of popping on almost like popcorn in my brain, just pop, 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 all these cross pollination elements, which really does sort of go back to what we're talking about, which is it takes certain levels of creativity, um, experimentation and Hey, let's see, let's see what happens. Obviously industrial adoption is slow and there's market conditions that need to happen. You know, how scalable are some of these things and blah, blah, blah. We know how that story ends up, but it still it still starts in the areas that we're talking about. So, so yeah, I think and, and, a lot of if, what we. Sorry, yeah. And if I may add, um, Peter, you know, one thing that came to my mind is, you know, when we started working with computers, you know, the if you think of Microsoft Word in itself, yes, it's an automated process that takes a digit a previously physical process of either typewriting, write by hand, and moves into the digital. But one of the things that it does that I think we sometimes take for granted is that we can bring in video, we can change the format, we can then also all kinds of other applications like PowerPoint and all kinds of other things start to bring in, we can put Excel sheets. It became a platform in which we had a lot more agency than we would have ever had before, right? And it seems like a very minor comparison and perhaps I'm missing some of the points about it. But when you think about what connecting it back to robots, what it's fundamentally trying to do is trying to integrate things that were previously disassociated. It's trying to, and if, and if a designer takes on this task seriously, it means that it's giving them the opportunity to integrate a wide range of opportunities that could have otherwise, or that still exist, just like in, you know, we did have graphic design forever and we had people who created images. And now you have this opportunity to bring them all into a process of making, a process of craft and manufacturing with a level of precision that is not sort of that speculative, tentative thing, but it starts to become very present, very possible, very feasible. And with the right framework, 
those small innovations really start to potentially take off um, or potentially start to take off and be seriously implemented. And thinking of the, for instance, the Toyota example is like, okay, well, you know, we have this kind of very fun, you know, fundamental robots that can move around, but hmm, what if you start to develop that and we connect it to GPS and hmm, what does it have the best role in the, in the process? Hmm, that may be moving pallets that were previously mindless jobs. So in our context, I think of the robots and automation as the space in which we can regain agency in the craft of making. We can regain agency in that cross-pollination where we really start to make that as an opportunity to understand the whole spectrum of the ecosystem, both financial and material on the things that we're, we're having an impact. And as I said, I don't think it's a matter of <clears throat> thinking of how this changes from one day to the other. <clears throat> but starting to experiment and start to rigorously investigate. And I think experimentation can seem like it's just this open-ended thing, but I think of it as rigorous investigation of where can it have the most impact in each one of our, our mission. I said interior design, I see tremendous potential on how it can change a lot of the way things are made. Architecture, building components, prefabrication, mass timber, um, 3D printing for foundation and other components. And I think the part that I think we're, pushing now is connecting engineering and construction because I think that's where the economic advantages and I, and I think they themselves understand that there's a lot of economic advantages and incentives that could really transpire in changing um, the way things are, are made and the way that that whole ecosystem can be developed. And we're at a point where things cost way more than the materials and it's all about the labor and it's all about the sort of challenges that it comes into making. It's all about the liability and it's all about this process. So how do we use this kind of key point in time and this key point in terms of technological development to make the best advantage for the benefit of all, essentially, is the way I think about it. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Bevel. Be sure to check out our other episodes, as well as plenty of other great content at Canadian Interiors by visiting canadianinteriors.com, where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, design listeners, we encourage you to make it good, make it clear, and make it count.